And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm Kat Rosenfield. I'm a culture writer, novelist, and the author of a recent Persuasion article titled The Illusion of a Frictionless Existence. This piece began with an interesting fact. Studies show that Gen Z, today's teens, are doing a lot less dangerous stuff than the generations that came before them. Things like drinking, drugs, sex, and so on. And when this information first came out, people found it very encouraging. They were like, we've hacked it. We've done it. We've raised a generation of 15-year-olds with impeccable judgment. Everything is great. Turns out if you scratch the surface of this, you find that it's not just dangerous or criminal behavior that today's teens are avoiding. They actually don't take any risks at all, including healthy ones, the kind of stuff that serves as gap bridging toward autonomy and adulthood. They don't drive. They don't date. They don't have jobs. They don't do any of the things that previous generations did to try to assert their independence to kind of get their feet under them. And looking at that, considering that in its totality, I don't think this generation is actually sensible. I think that they're scared. My piece explores how technological advances, plus the influence of the coronavirus pandemic, has moved us towards a frictionless society where we avoid everyday annoyances through touchless, contactless, AI-driven methods, and how this may be impacting young people who've never known any other way of life. I worry that we're inculcating fear and helplessness in kids who are learning that discomfort is dangerous, that independence is too risky, and that the world is a scary place they don't want to be in and can't handle. The article, again, is titled The Illusion of a Frictionless Existence. I hope you read it. I hope you like it. I would love to hear your thoughts. Kat Rosenfield's piece, called The Illusion of a Frictionless Existence, was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Murtaza Hussein. Murtaza is a reporter at The Intercept, and we had a really interesting conversation about America, the world, the American elite, the nature of progressivism in the United States. We talked a little bit about why it is that some people in America become so rattled, become so offended when you point out that the idea of this sort of natural set of political beliefs shared by ethnic or religious minorities turns out to be mistaken. We talked about the divisions between the American elite within each demographic group and less elite members of those groups, whether they be working class or whether they be quite affluent, but in different kind of milieus. We talked about the cultural evolution in the United States, the kind of culture in the 2000s, from the Book of Mormon to 30 Rock to South Park, which was the kind of background music for the election of Barack Obama and how it contrasts with the much more earnest self-serious, perhaps sometimes sanctimonious culture, which is dominant today. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Murtaza, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I follow your work in The Intercept and I follow your work on Twitter and you do a lot of really great thinking and writing. You're not in an obvious ideological space. So you write for The Intercept, which is a pretty left-wing publication, uh, very critical of American foreign policy. 
but you also, in some interesting ways, butt heads with a lot of the contemporary left in the United States. So if you forgive me the very basic question, sort of, who are you and what makes you tick? Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting question. Originally, I gravitated towards the left because I, I was very, you know, the coming of age moments for me were like the Iraq war and the, you know, the U.S. conflicts in the Middle East. And, you know, I was very into the foreign policy of the Middle East and the U.S. Towards, towards the Middle East, sorry. And at that time, the people who were critical of it and turned out to be right were people on the left and people who were very on the libertarian right at that time. They had the critique, which was sort of a non-mainstream critique for the most part, which turned out to be the most cogent one for a long time. So I kind of got into left-wing politics that way. And notionally, and I still actually do feel this very much, is that you know I identify with a more economically redistributive politics, maybe less than I did 15 years ago, but very strongly today. And I still believe that the U.S. has like an overly libertarian economic system, which is a bit cruel and could do with a greater safety net, which I think is a extremely left-wing position outside the U.S. But in the U.S., that would be considered a very left-wing thing to say. So, you know, I got into it for that reason. As you pointed out, I kind of have a different politics a little bit than people at the intercept. But, you know, to their credit, they kind of encouraged me and they kind of said, that's fine. If you use your positions, it's okay. You can write about it and we'll edit it and we'll put it up there. And they've been pretty good about that. They haven't really been forcing this particular ideological line on myself or people who work there, in my experience at least. But, you know, that said, I'm a little skeptical of a lot of some of the contemporary trends and some aspects of progressive politics and culture in the sense that I still come from an immigrant background and I grew up with a lot of immigrants. And I know that one of the ways that the left identifies that they're the party of, you know, on behalf of immigrants and minorities. And I just kind of see, feel that, you know, I have to, if I'm being honest, like I have to see that the a lot of the policies and the attitudes that they have, they, I find that they're not very popular with the people that they are ostensibly claiming to speak for. What does that mean? Give me some examples of how the American left actually you know, claims to speak for immigrants or claims to speak for minorities, but in terms of policies and in terms of perhaps the values, there's a real cultural mismatch. Yeah, I'm not saying because my preference or because like I want it to be this way, but what I've observed, and I have to be honest, my observation is that you know, immigrants very much so, the majority of them, and minorities generally as a category in the United States, they're far more socially conservative and conservative in many ways, I would say, than the avant-garde of what you can call the left in the U.S., the political and cultural left. They're far, far more conservative. And, you know, some of the things that are very exercises people on the left today, I don't think that these are as popular as they think. And some of them, I would say that I think that a lot of people who they can speak for, can be on their side, they don't understand it at all. They may be strongly against it even. One quick example, I would say the left is very secular in the United States. But, you know, I, I grew up with like a lot of Jamaican people and I still live around like a lot of, you know, people from the Caribbean, South Asians and so forth. They're very religious. They're very, they go to church a lot. It's a very big part of their lives. The traditional family is a very, very important part of the bedrock of their identity and their life and so forth too. So to denigrate that or to, you know, not treat it as unimportant even, uh, I think you're going to miss out on ways people are coming from. And also, you know, immigrants, the reason they come to the United States is because they like the United States, the default reason they're coming, and they're kind of happy to be there. So they're very patriotic in a way, and they're patriotic in like a traditional way, which 
you know, you could say white people, quote unquote, have sort of been shamed out of a little bit or they're more feel more ambivalent about in some cases. But, you know, they are patriotic. I, I used to work in this call center a long time ago. It's very interesting. It's actually in Toronto when I was living at the time. And I used to sit next to this guy who's a Bangladeshi immigrant. And he would sing the national anthem to himself. He'd hum it to himself every morning. And he'd be so happy to be in Canada. And I talked to him. He'd be like, yeah, you know, we have food every day. And, like, you know, everyone's so nice. And, you know, I get here securely every single day. And, like, oh, this place. I've never seen, like, a Canadian co-worker like, hum the national anthem. Not, not least... Uh, an American coworker, like a non-immigrant American. So they're interesting. They're like very different people. And I think that the reason that they're kind of, uh, if you see the polls, you see some of the trends, they're kind of on the grasp of losing the support of the Democratic Party, you could say, of immigrants, many of them, and minorities in some degree. It's because they're kind of not in touch with them, really. And if I were to go a little bit further, I would say it's because institutions, and you could say elite colleges and universities, there's a certain class of people who go there who, regardless of their race, they all share the same transnational culture and, you know, predilections and attitudes by virtue of being there in this very, very rigorous, I would say, psychological environment. And they're a class of themselves. But they don't really have much in common, I think, with most people who are in minorities and, you know, they, they have different values. So I think I speak to that honestly. I can't get into it. Yeah. There's a ton in what you've said, just a few thoughts here. The first is that more common organization, which is probably best known in the United States for doing this hidden tribe study, which is really good. They also did a study in Germany around the time of the so-called refugee crisis. So perhaps it was 2016, 2017, I forget the exact year they did the study. And, you know, it's amazing. We, we asked these different ideological tribes within Germany, which are a little different from the ones in America, but there's some similarities. You know, what do you think about these immigrants coming in from Syria or refugees coming in from Syria and other places? And to what extent do you think that the values are similar to yours? And of course, the sort of very far left segment of German society was thrilled to have refugees coming in and very supportive of them, which, you know, is a noble and honorable thing. And then when we asked, do you think they have the same values as you? They said, yes, yes, of course, they have the same values. We said, like, you know, Berlin, vegan, polyamorous, you know, lefties, to cliche a little bit, were like, yes, you know, these refugees coming in from a very religious, quite conservative society are exactly like us. And then you ask these quite conservative Christian Germans, quite religious Germans, are you happy that these refugees are here? No, 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 terrible, right? And you ask them, well, do you think that you have anything in common in terms of values? And they said, no, of course not. The values are completely different. And actually, I don't know, some very important cultural and religious differences, but probably the values are much more similar compared to when you match up the sort of Berlin lefty vegan to the refugees who are coming in. And so that's, that's a sort of misperception that I think in an interesting way exists on both sides of a political spectrum. Yeah, it's very true. And you know, the, the openness to uh, the other, that's kind of like a very progressive value. I think it's a very good value in a sense. It's like a very admirable in its own terms. I would say it's a generational thing too. Like maybe the first generation of people who come to a country as immigrants, refugees, they're just kind of glad that anyone is there who accepts them and they're kind of happy about that. And, you know, maybe they'll vote for a left wing party because it's their one issue is they want to be accepted in this new place where they're not accepted. But, you know, people, if they immigrate, their kids live here and their kids' kids live here and then their kids' kids, if they don't feel like that anymore, they don't feel just happy to be there. They have a different set, set of values and so forth. And I think that, you know, American liberalism, I could say, is powerfully assimilative. So it's not like nobody identifies with it who is a minority. There's a lot of people who are minorities and, you know, very sincerely and so forth. 
But it's not like that powerful solution that it doesn't really matter. Like every single person will go along. I think you'll see a similar breakdown among immigrants, minorities who vote for conservative parties and uh, vote for liberal parties, as you did with like Italians and, you know, Greeks in the past who immigrated to the United States. Now, many of them Irish people who are now like, you know, bedrock of the GOP in many ways. I think we'll see a similar breakdown. And I think it's a simplification of it too, because in the United States, there was obviously for a long time, very simple demographics. There were like 85% white Americans of different European country origins. And then there were black Americans, African Americans who were specifically people who were the descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. Now, since 1965, obviously immigration has opened up and the country's demographics are changing. Well, I wouldn't say very rapidly, but they're changing, you know, slowly, steadily every year. And that simple sort of view of someone's skin color can determine what their political views are probably. It's not going to be tenable much, very much longer. And it's not being tenable. So it's breaking down as we see it. Yeah, so you're sort of starting to hint at something that I know we're both interested in and we've both written about in one way or another, which is, you know, this sort of deep assumption that a lot of Democrats had for a few decades that as America becomes more demographically diverse and as the share of a white population declines, this is naturally going to give a political advantage to Democrats. But because historically people have in the majority voted for Republicans and non-white people have voted for Democrats, as the ratio between these two groups starts to move, you know, Democrats are just going to have a much easier time winning elections. Now, you know, for the last few years, that has started to really come into doubt. And I've written about that in my last book. And the key group that people point to is Hispanics. For a long time, Hispanics voted in very uh, significant numbers for the Democratic Party over the Republican Party. But that has shifted significantly since 2016. And so when you look at why Ron DeSantis and Mark Rubio won pretty big electoral victories in Florida in the last midterms, but also why Republicans have sometimes been able to flip some overwhelmingly Latino districts in the south of Texas and in other parts of the country. Well, the reason is that Hispanics have really moved towards the Republican Party. And some of that has to do with a kind of cultural mismatch that you're talking about between those more sort of working class values, some of those mostly conservative values, and the kind of elite dominated Democratic Party. But now there seems to be first indications that the same trend may be happening with Asian Americans, that they're sort of lagging behind Hispanics a little bit. But the first trends, at least in the midterms, and perhaps the 2020 election, that Asian Americans aren't voting as consistently for Democrats as in the past anymore either. What's your prediction on this? Or how should we think through the causes and the likely future of this? Well, you know, it's interesting. The Republicans, they're known as the party of law and order. That's kind of like uh, the brand that they've developed over time. And the Democrats are seen as a party of slightly more indulgent attitude to social issues, like a softer touch. That's not always been the case in either party, but that's kind of like the roughly the branding. And, you know, law and order in the U.S. has kind of been coded. It was coded before, like it meant something like it was a, you know, white, black, racial politics, uh, dog whistle. That was like the idea in the 60s and uh, into the 80s. I think Ronald Reagan even said something explicitly that effect of just say law and order instead of saying racist. So something like that. But, you know, for immigrants... If you're coming here freshly and you don't have that context, you don't feel that way, they like law and order. Law and order is great. You're coming to countries that didn't have law and order and you're fleeing the turmoil and chaos that ensues without that. So it's the party which says they're about law and order. First of all, it's very attractive. 
Second of all, America is a very violent society for a you know peaceful, stable country who's well off. The level of violence is quite high, uh, particularly in poor areas where immigrants are more likely to settle. So, you know, again, a party promising law and order, branding themselves that way, very very popular. Yeah, this is something that always struck me as a luxury belief in, in America. And look, I mean, I think America does have genuine problems with mass incarceration and there's many terrible problems with the American criminal justice system, without a doubt. But, you know, there's some neighborhoods in the United States that are incredibly safe. And even for, you know, in theory, you might think that there's more to steal there or more reason in a way for certain kinds of criminals to go to those neighborhoods. You know, there's many neighborhoods in America that are incredibly safe. And those tend to be the neighborhoods in which very progressive left-wing people live. And then, you know, there's the neighborhoods that are predominantly inhabited either by ethnic minorities or by immigrants that often, you know, range from being somewhat safe to being very, very deeply unsafe. And so, you know, the luxury belief of living in, you know, the nicest parts of, you know, the Boston suburbs or the leafiest parts of Los Angeles or Washington, D.C., and voting for defund the police on behalf of people who, you know, live in neighborhoods that unfortunately, you know, have much more immediate challenges with public safety, with being able to walk in the street without being worried about being marked or assaulted, just strikes me as sort of the most extreme version of that separation of the American elite from the rest of the society, which I've been thinking about a lot in the last weeks and months, which just strikes me as, as a very striking aspect of American society today. Well, you know, in New York City, we're right on the heels of very, very big anti-police protests in 2020. The next mayoral candidate who was elected to office was a former police officer, Eric Adams. And his voters were overwhelmingly from ethnic minority, uh, black and immigrant areas of Brooklyn. You know, they voted for him. And the, the people who voted against him for the more progressive challengers, they were from the small pockets of Brooklyn, which are kind of known to be more wealthier and uh you know, more ethnically white in the city. So it was kind of a very stark repudiation of exactly the attitude. But in the primary in particular, right? I mean, the general sort of everybody voted for him, but in the primary, which was the most competitive election, the much more progressive candidates won the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side and Morningside Heights and all of the kind of predominantly white, highly educated, very affluent parts of New York. And then Eric Adams, who, as you're saying, is a you know black guy who's a former cop, won the nomination because of his strength in the outer boroughs, in you know the further parts of Brooklyn, not the fanciest parts of Brooklyn, in the Bronx and elsewhere. You know, it was kind of predictable in a way, but people were shocked by it. And I find when you tell people this beforehand, they get angry. They don't like to hear it for some reason. I'm not totally sure why, but... Uh, you know, there is a sense of out-of-touchness with the constituency they want to appeal to. Let me dig into this, for When you're saying that people get angry, describe that reaction. Like, what does that feel like? Because I think to people, especially outside the United States, perhaps who are outside of the circles, like, what do you mean by angry? What does it feel like when they're angry? What do you think that the source of that anger is and how do you explain it? Let me take a step back and let me describe. There's some things which the progressive orthodoxy in the United States which are told to people as though they're obvious. They tell you, like, of course, this means that, you know, this means this. And, like, you know, obviously, like, you know, people who are this way will vote this way, and we should do this thing for them. Of course, they want that. And, you know, I never knew that was obvious. Like, I kind of, like, I'm a minority, and I've well, most of my life has been around people who, I guess you could say, are minorities. The things that are deemed as obvious by contemporary progressives in many ways I don't see them as being obvious. I've never observed this. I don't see observe it regularly. I haven't heard a lot of these things. 
the idea of the social issues and so forth. I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm just saying that I, this is obvious to me. And often if you tell someone that someone of their deeply held beliefs, which to them they've heard their whole lives and to them may be obvious, you know, are not widely held or are not popular or you need to break this down a little bit and convince me, it can be like offensive. Like it can be like, well, you'd ask me to explain to you basic morality. And I'll give you another example. You know, it's very funny. Obviously, Donald Trump, one of his famous policies was the Muslim ban. You know, that was like a, he rebranded that with the Muslim ban, it, the travel ban, like call it whatever. But that was the initial branding of it, which people took to. And you think, obviously, well, you know, obviously Muslim Americans never going to vote for Republicans again, never going to vote for Trump, certainly. Uh, even though pre-9-11, I think 70% of them vote GOP, like that's like, going to be 0% in the future. And yet, in the 2020 election, he got a third of their vote. And, you know, in the last primary, a lot of Muslims in Arab-majority areas, Muslim-majority areas in the country, campaigning for the Republicans is because they're kind of triggered by the social issues that uh, they don't like the social issues that Democrats are perceived to be endorsing today. You know, they have very conservative views on sexuality in the family. They will prioritize that over any other perceived allegations about Republicans or past behavior of Republicans. Because to them, that's obvious. To them, that's the obvious belief. And I kind of try to tell people, like, you better go easy on this issue with these people because that's not what their values are like. And I think, I guess, because, you know, liberals and progressives, and I say I'm liberal, but like, you know, very progressive people, they have a very, very strong faith in their assimilative powers. And I think there is a very strong assimilative power, but, you know, you have to like, changes take time if you want to effectuate them and people's attitudes. They take a long time to put them in place. And I think that they're really so ahead of themselves and they come up with new things every couple of years that they need to really slow down and see if anyone's actually on page with them and you know, be open to criticism like that. You know, it sounds like you know a bunch of people who are faithful Muslims who ended up voting for Donald Trump, whether through reporting or perhaps, you know, personal acquaintances or family members. Talk me through how they think through this, because in a way, the Latino vote for somebody like Trump doesn't surprise me nearly as much because we think of Latinos as one category. But of course, they're incredibly diverse and there's deep ethnic and racial divisions among Latinos. And when Trump says something like, well, they're not sending their best, which is sort of one of his statements that is always held up rightly as offensive by Trump on this. Well, you know, it, it turns out that a majority of people in Mexico, in some polls, are in favor of building a wall on the southern border of Mexico because they think that people from Central America are bad and dangerous and whatever, right? So it doesn't surprise me that there's a lot of Latinos who don't feel targeted by that, right? Who say, well, I am the right kind of Latino. And so if Trump wants to keep out the wrong kind of Latinos, I agree with that. And, you know, perhaps I'm from Mexico and perhaps some of my heritage is white, majority of my heritage is white. Within that political system, we have the same misgivings about people coming in from El Salvador and other places who may be indigenous, who may be whatever, right? What I'm trying to say is that I think in that context, there's a way for Latino Americans to say, he's not talking about me. Right, he's talking about these other Latinos. Now, that's harder, not because there's no divisions within the Muslim world. There's obviously as many and as complicated and perhaps more complicated divisions of religious, denominational, ethnic, cultural, linguistic nature within the Muslim community in the United States. But the way that Trump talked about Muslims was so broad, right? The Muslim ban, right? Like, until we figured out what's going on, let's not have any Muslims coming into the country. But it just feels harder to make that kind of distinction, right? Like a Latino American can say, well... He thinks I'm the right kind of Latino, so he's not talking about me. 
but it's sort of hard to see how a Muslim American can say the same thing, given some of his very broad language about the Muslim ban. It's not like the wrong Muslim ban, it's the Muslim ban, right? So I guess, is it just like, well, we're prioritizing other things? Or, you know, so if you push somebody on this, who's Muslim and who voted for Trump, what do you think they would respond? It's interesting, like, he did start off Trump speaking in the most broad possible terms, which was quite galling. I think later in his administration, he started to dial down a little bit, or he would say some somewhat more conciliatory things. But yet, you know, nonetheless, there was still an iconic platform of his. Uh, what I observed is that, you know, in the U.S., obviously people tend to vote. They attract local political officials a lot, too. And a lot of local Republican officials are not, didn't have the same attitude towards it or didn't like the policy. And they had to kind of defend it a little bit. But they were, I was in some meetings like this. So they were like, well, you know, he meant this. Or like, you know, that was kind of, you know how Trump is. He said some really crazy things. That's not what he meant. We like you. We don't even talk about you and so forth. So they can still make the same compartmentalization. But, you know, I find more broadly, and, you know, I'm familiar with their voting with Muslim American parents that kind of like did reporting on issues related to their communities post 9 11 and so forth. But, you know, I find it's very similar in other groups too. I live in like a very Haitian and Jamaican neighborhood, and a lot of people, I would say people like Trump, but people kind of gravitate to kind of his attitude in a way, which I think is resonates with a lot of people. He's like a macho guy. They like a macho leader. And this is something which I think around the world, People really, it's like I have an understated value to politics. They want a leader who expresses certain, you know, energy and machismo and so forth. And you could say it's not very rational and, you know, the policies matter more and what are the substance and so forth. That's true, but people tend to vote in many ways in cultural issues. And I think that there was a perception that the Democratic Party is a party of like, it's a little limp or something, something that's not as much. Joe Biden is kind of a great Thermidorian candidate because he's so trying to satisfy both sides with this old type of Democrat, which is sort of seems to be dying out a little bit. But they are trying to Trump's much reason one. I think a lot of, uh, you know, if you look, a lot of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans, Latino Americans, Americans of other backgrounds, immigrant Americans, well, they want like, a, I won't say they want a Caesar, but they do want like a tough seeming president who sort of embodies the, the values that they themselves would like to embody in their own lives and their own homes. I don't always agree with Trevor Noah, but one of my favorite clips of his or skits of his was a Daily Show segment, probably in 2016, 2017, when he said, oh, you know, Trump is the first African president that America has or something along those lines. And he sort of compared Trump to various political figures on the continent of Africa and said, look, he's just like them. And of course, that's salient to Trevor Noah because he grew up in South Africa and knows African politics well. But of course, if you let an American you might think, well, you know, Trump is the first Latino president because look at all these Caudillos who actually are quite similar to Trump. And if you're from the Middle East, you're going to say, well, actually, he's pretty similar to that, right? Like, I think this is sort of like a macho, strongman-ish type that is very common in various cultures around the world with their own sort of slightly local tinge. And Trump is just sort of a version of that in a way, right? So that sort of point that Trevor Noah made about Africa can sort of be applied to these other places. I'm still struck by your observation People are generally shocked and offended when you call in doubt this way of thinking about things. I've experienced that as well. And I think there's sort of two things that are coming together here, right? Like one is the sort of hope of inevitable progress, right? It's like one who the left always wants to be, and perhaps the right too in a different way. But it's, you know, we're on the right side of history. And the particular way in which that is coalesced in America is this idea that, you know, we have the right values. And the country is becoming more diverse and people, 
who are you know members of these demographic groups share those values, and so therefore we're going to win, and therefore we're on the right side of history. And so I think there's sort of something about just the overall vision, and perhaps in a sort of slightly patronizing way, there can also be an imputation of political virtue and wisdom, right? Like the people who really are wise about politics and who really are pure are all of these non-white people. And so, you know, if I am to be noble in my beliefs as a white progressive, then they better believe what I believe. Because if they don't, then suddenly that calls into doubt that I am the virtuous progressive who has it all figured out, right? So I think that's why there's something that undercuts the self-perception, the identity of some of the people who hold that set of beliefs. And then I think there's something else which helps to explain this, or which helps to sustain this, which goes back against the separation of the American elite. You know, nowadays, if you're part of the American elite, you went to, you know, Harvard or Amherst or, you know, Berkeley any time in the last 20 years, you're going to know a lot of people who are non-white and a lot of people who are not Christians, certainly not faithful Christians, and probably in your friend group within your, you know, group of people you actually know pretty well. It is going to be pretty ethnically and religiously diverse. And that's, I think, a great achievement of a country. Of course, it's not going to be necessarily socioeconomically diverse, and it certainly is not going to be very ideologically diverse. And so I think that there's this weird availability heuristic that people have who are in that kind of elite group, right? Like you went to one of those top colleges and then you went to work on the Hill or in banking or in tech. And, you know, now you're somehow in journalism or something like that. And it's just, it's not just that you want to be on the right side of history. And so that requires you to impute these beliefs to particular demographic groups. It's that you're like, well, but I know black people, like I have black people in my life and they share those beliefs. And I know Muslims, I, I you know, I like had classmates who are Muslims, and they share those beliefs. So what are you saying? Like African-Americans don't agree with this? Muslims don't agree with this? Well, the people you know or believe this because they went to Harvard like you did, right? And the part of the American elite like you are. And the American elite is just very culturally distant from the rest of the society. So I think there's a sort of weird mental shortcut. Well, one of the reasons why people are offended by this idea is that it flies in the face of the empirical evidence they have. And the empirical evidence they have is seemingly very reliable, which is, I'm good friends with people who are from those groups, and they all believe X. And more or less, I mean, slightly exaggerating, it's true they all believe X, because that's true of all the white friends these people have too, right? I wouldn't say this exactly to start, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, in these Baathist Arab countries, at the peak of their power, they were like, you know, select like there's a Christian and there's an Alawite and there's a Sunni and there's a Shia and they all, all like come together and they make up the ruling party and we all on the same page. We all affirm socialism and, you know, the leader and et cetera, et cetera. But most people were selected and they were groomed to be a specific way and have a certain ideological outlook, which it turns out was not really reflected very much in the broader communities that came from or communities they were said to represent. They were sort of very unique by virtue of being placed in certain political circumstances. And the constituents are not very broad. I think in the U.S. is not that stark. But I think it's a little bit of that. Like the Kobe elite is so different. It sits on top of the rest of society. And, you know, it's good that they have a diverse elite because it's trying to say that it's important that we try to represent everyone's society. That's, that's a good thing. But, you know, I think that it requires being humble, at least. And I'm not even saying progressive values are bad or no one will ever like them or they're always going to be rejected by X, Y, Z person. I think it's not the case. It's just that you need to look at it with a sense of uh, humility, you know, what things you don't know, the fact you could be wrong, the fact that all your beliefs could be the opposite, potentially. 
and that shouldn't shock you. And as it becomes more empirically manifest, like the reason I pointed out is because I don't want people to be surprised when 10 years, 40, 60, 80% of Latinos or Asians are voting for the Republicans suddenly. And then, you know, all the plans people have laid and liberals have laid for the future of the country are come to naught because they're built on the faulty premises. So I'm trying to point it out for that reason. And I do see early hints that it will go in that direction. Also, I would say that there's a perception. Some people say that, well, people are so intolerant. They can't hear anything different than them. They'll completely like shut you down and cast you and so forth. I think it's a little bit overstated. I think that I'm able to say whatever I want and even in a very loving environment. Because I think that you have to be very polite. <laughs> if you can criticize someone's deepest beliefs, do it very politely. It's the same with if you criticize someone's religion. Make sure you like, you know, say it very politely, preface, you know, X, Y, and Z. And now here's my like, you know, critique, suggestion to you and so forth. And then they're more amenable to it. And I think because America is so secular, a lot of metaphysical weight gets put into politics by people, and particularly people on the left, I would say who are more secular. So when you're criticizing their political view and their political standpoint, it's not just a set of policies you're criticizing. You're criticizing something deep in their identity and their self-identification. So if you're going to do that, it's very emotional. You better unpack it in a way which takes that into account. And I think when you do that, they actually are tend to be more, in many cases, more amenable to the crisis, more open to hearing it than uh, you might expect. Let's double-click for a moment about this interesting class divide that you've sort of hinted at. There seems to be a suggestion in some of the recent articles and research on the rightward drift of Asian Americans, who, by the way, perhaps we can talk for a moment about the incoherence and absurdity of that category, but who seem to shift towards the Republican Party. There's still a vote in the majority for the Democratic Party, much less so than recently. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, when you look at Asian Americans on the Upper West Side or on the Upper East Side, right, people who um, are of a higher socioeconomic standing by and large, who probably have advanced degrees, or at least have gone to college, they still tend to vote for Democrats in much larger numbers. But, you know, when it comes to East Asians, for example, the areas where that's less likely to be the case is in, you know, Sunset Park, for example, or in other more working class neighborhoods. So I guess two questions. One is, how do you see this playing out in this sort of immigrant community that you know best? And second is, I mean, is there actually a kind of possibility in that, that in the end, all of those theories about the consistent vote of those minority groups is going to come true? Which is to say, is it that the working class segments of those communities are leading indicators and in the long run, they're going to shift more and more towards the middle or towards the right. And so this whole idea of a demographic majority is going to prove to be wrong. Or is there something about the idea that actually perhaps the first generation of immigrants is super patriotic in the kind of somewhat old-fashioned touching way that you talked about? But the second and third generation may be like, well, we're no longer grateful for just being able to be here and hear the things that are wrong. And then they sort of move to the left. The first generation is much less likely to be highly educated. There's obviously segments of first generation immigrants who are, but on average, they're less likely to be highly educated. And in part, because this country allows for great socioeconomic mobility, the children, the grandchildren are way more likely to go to those elite places where they then also join a sort of broader elite culture of how to think about those things and probably move to the left. So describe those divisions, but is there a reason to think that perhaps actually in the long run, it is the sort of most socioeconomically successful segments of those immigrant groups that are going to determine the politics of a group as a whole? 
Americans don't tend to think of class too much, but I think what we're going to see is a breakdown on class lines. And the way the white working class often word votes for the Republicans, not always, but a significant chunk of them vote for the Republicans. I think you're going to see the, you know, immigrant or minority working class voting for Republicans because they feel their values are more represented by the Republicans. They feel a sense of class resentment towards the liberal, uh, highly educated liberal party, which should be the Democrats in the first place. So I think having the, the chip on the shoulder aspect of it, which I think manifests people understand it quite well in case of white economic and social class stratification, is equally the case in non-white people's economic and social stratification. If the party of resentment against the upper classes, even if they represent their interests and really do much for them in the end, the Republicans, the people will vote for it in the same way. In the case of will it be a leading indicator, will future generations, you know, go and vote for Democrats? I think that, yeah, if they, if you work in a convenience store and then your kid does really well and goes to Harvard or Stanford, they're going to take on a different set of social norms, most likely. And a lot of social norms are going to incline them towards being more liberal because these are very liberal institutions and they'll go into the world where they work, where it's liberal, and then they will absorb the attitudes of that world. But the people who don't go, to that world who, you know, don't rise economically or in the same way. A lot of them are going to vote Republican for the same reason that white voters vote Republican. And I think it's actually kind of great in a way. It's kind of good that you, I don't think we should have politics stratified along race in any country because then it's like a race war, which I don't prefer. I don't prefer a class war either, but I prefer that, you know, it's that people don't define their politics preemptively by race. So I think actually it's a positive trend. And I do expect this can happen. Are the majority of people gonna, majority of people gonna vote Republican in the future or not white? I don't think so. I think it'll be the same way it breaks down with white people and then the other positive. I very strongly agree with your normative assessment of this, and I've said this before on this podcast and written about a lot, including my last book, that, you know, actually this sort of supposed hopeful or utopian vision of the left in this particular question is deeply dystopian. I mean, the idea that I would be able to walk down the street in the market 25 or 50 years from now and know exactly who you're voting for by looking at the color of your skin is really um, uh, just in itself a very unpleasant idea. Like, that just doesn't sound like a fun society to live in. And then when you think about how that would structure politics, right, the way in which they would really just turn all of politics into this very pitched battle between different ethnic groups, it's a really dystopian idea. And then the other interesting thing is a lot of the times the people who are deeply attached to this vision are themselves white, but they somehow always forget that on the vision they're talking about, they kind of then have to vote for the right, which is not what we want to do, right? Now, obviously, that vision allows for some people to not vote, you know, in line with a demographic group, but there is a kind of slight tension there, slight irony there, where they're sort of like, you know, it's always going to be like whites versus people of color, and people of color are going to be more, and that's somehow a good thing. And we don't think about the fact that not all of the people believe this, obviously, but a good number of them are themselves white, and they somehow think of themselves as the other part of this, which which shows perhaps they don't ultimately take seriously this idea that that's going to be the dividing line. They realize that there's other kinds of things that determine, you know, which side of a political divide you're on as well. One quick point too, uh, if you notice in the Republicans too, there is another phenomenon of like the very economically successful immigrants who are very Republican too, for a different reason, because they identify with a different sort of tradition of, you know, American elite culture, which is like the very libertarian kind of tradition. Vivek Ramaswamy is the most like recent example of this as well, too. I think that's going to be a lot of it, too, because a lot of immigrants and their kids, they really do identify with, like, you know, people in America, sometimes they kind of like roll their eyes at pulling up by, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, that kind of attitude seems like a bit of a cliche. But, you know, it's very popular to a lot of people. And if they do well, 
they're like, why do I don't want to be patronized to? I don't want to be treated as though, you know, I'm like an endangered species who, you know, needs to be held hand, have their hand held all the time. They also the same machismo and all that as well too. So I think it will break down in a very complex way, even beyond just the class two. It'll be much more mixed even than we expect. Again, I think one of the nice things we're bringing out in this conversation is how similar different groups are in that regard. I mean, when you look at white voters, some people say, oh, you know, there's no economic element here because, you know, somebody's income doesn't really predict that well or that for Trump or somebody else. But that's partially about what the nature of your economic success is, right? I mean, somebody who makes $250,000 a year in the United States could be a lawyer, you know, could be, you know, in a senior position at a nonprofit. And those are very likely to vote Democratic, right? The most likely to have gone to very good colleges, to live in very metropolitan areas, to be around a lot of other very progressive people. And so they're likely to vote to the Democratic Party. There's a different kind of white American who makes $250,000, who perhaps has gone to a more local college or a big state college, you know, and who now is, you know, running a contractor business in some town in Michigan, or who perhaps owns a chain of a few stores in the local area or a few restaurants or something like that, right? They might also make about $250,000 a year. They might also be white, but they're much more likely to vote for the Republican Party. There's a kind of difference in economic milieu. And what you're saying, I think, it suggests that the same kind of divide might play out among South Asian immigrants, among East Asian immigrants, among Latino immigrants, right? Where sort of the person who goes off to Harvard and, you know, has the cushy job in journalism or make a decent amount of money, or who's a lawyer, who's a doctor, you know, who's a sort of nonprofit worker at a place where they're doing well, they're very likely to vote for the Democratic Party. The people who are doing very well for themselves in the more entrepreneurial areas of business, you know, perhaps more in finance where that's changing and sort of, you know, some other parts of the economy, they might then be much more likely to have these libertarian leanings and vote for the Republican Party. So let me go to a sort of different strand of the conversation. You were saying in interesting ways that, you know, you're on the left and you're also a liberal. And we've been using liberal a lot in this conversation as just sort of left wing or sort of favorable to the Democratic Party. But I want to go to the sort of more, you know, capital L liberal idea for a moment. There is this big debate on the American left about what to think about philosophical liberalism. And you've challenged people a few times by saying, you know, you claim not to be a liberal, but then what are you? So it sounds like you do think of yourself as a liberal, at least in certain respects. Talk me through how you think about this question. Yeah, so obviously in the U.S., liberal is used colloquially to mean like the Democrat, like the support of the Democratic Party. And it's a term for the left generally, they refer to as liberals. I actually think that most people in America are probably liberals across both parties, the broad majority of people. Capital L liberals, uh, you know, there's a sense of commitment to personal, uh, liberties, civil liberties and so forth. Like that aspect of it is more pronounced than, uh, you know, a current suite of policies or approaches, which may or may be branded liberalism, but may or may not comport with that. Some things which are coded as right wing for some reason, like freedom of speech. I think it's a very important brand that people who consider themselves liberals should embrace. And, you know, also it entails a degree of economic liberty as well, too. Like, I think that's a free property, enterprise, things like that. These are all very, very important. And the reason I say it's kind of important is because most people, if you have speaking of someone who's like children of immigrants, you come from places where those things, you really take them for granted when they're not there. Like, you know, private property, like not being confiscated, being able to say what you want, uh, religious liberty and all of these things. So giving broad, scope to people's ability to express themselves and to 
associate with each other. I think that's like, you know, a philosophical basis of politics, which I identify with. That's it. A lot of things that people who identify as liberals in the United States say to do, I mean, I agree with. I mean, I think that they're even contradictory towards liberals and so forth. And there's some aspects of liberalism which I think that are open to critique. Too. I don't think it's unpredictable. These you know, reform or needs guidance and so forth. Some of the economic outcomes often when left to their own devices are not favorable or don't produce the goods we'd like to see. So I think there's that part of it too. But yeah, I would say I'm a liberal in the sense that, you know, you could say that that makes me a conservative actually too. Like I'm a, a conservative liberal. I'm a very cautious liberal. And I think that the goods of liberalism should not be quickly discarded. And, you know, we should also be careful how it develops as well too. Yeah, one of the sort of most frustrating things I find when I'm in the States, and, you know, it exists to some extent in other countries as well, but it's somehow worse at the moment, is this uh, way in which people on both sides of the political spectrum just let the enemies determine where they stand, right? I mean, I think there's like some circles of conservatives. I sort of think less about conservatives because I'm not in conservative circles. My milieu is not conservative. It's not sort of, you know... But there's some circles of that where, like, you know, if some Democratic politician says something or MSNBC says something, then the next day they have to say the opposite, right? No matter how crazy that is. But there's also a lot of my friends and acquaintances who, you know, smart people who, you know, if Tucker Carlson says something today, they got to say the opposite tomorrow. And I'm just struck by the extent to which that is true of free speech. I mean, you know, free speech for centuries has been a political value that has been claimed by many different parts of a political spectrum for good reason, but which was a very obviously left-wing value, right? If you think of yourself as somebody who is marginalized, as somebody who doesn't have power, as somebody who wants to stand up for the weak, then by definition, you're going to be really skeptical of giving authorities and the government and the powers that be the authority to decide what you can and can't say. And so, you know, some of the greatest social movements that the left has produced, from abolitionists to the civil rights movement, as well as other important movements outside the United States, trade union movements, and you know, miners and so on, they all claimed free speech because they realized that they needed that in order to be able to militate against power. And it's so striking to me that today, because I think there are uh, uh, people on various parts of the political spectrum, including people who are left-leaning and people are centrist, but also conservatives who complain about sort of informal restrictions on free speech in some cultural arenas in the United States. And so they talk a lot about free speech. You know, that's enough. But Tucker Carlson had like a few segments about free speech, but suddenly left-wing people think free speech is a right-wing value. And it just drives me nuts. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. And it kind of brings me back to the point about liberalism too. Like one of the great things about liberalism is that the thing I like about it the most is that theoretically you judge an individual. There's no prejudgments for ill or for worse about a person. There should not be. You should be the true liberal attitude should be like takes the person and uh, judge them on their merits and so forth. I think that the sort of this inclination that some of those things, if free speech, if we perceive it and our enemies are using it, our enemies are bad and they're going to cause harm with it, then it should be restricted or our understanding of it should be restricted. Or, you know, let's judge people positively or negatively based on some physical characteristic of them as well, too. Let's discard it in, the, in favor of that. Some people, I think it's Wesley Yang, for instance, he says, well, liberalism is being replaced with something called the successor ideology, which you don't know what it is, but it has different different connotations, it prioritizes safetyism and things like that. And, you know, these liberal values like free speech are obviously going to fall by the wayside because people deem other things to be more important than uh, these cardinal principles, which have historically been identified with liberals. Like, I'm not totally convinced of the successor ideology exactly, but I do think that 
people because start crossing like something because that they prioritize other things over liberal values. They may be more open to discarding them, which I think would be a mistake. Yeah, I think one of the weird things about these debates is that there just isn't a term for the political space we're talking about. I mean, you know, for a while, identity politics, and then later for a while, wokeness, were terms that members of that broad ideological movement claimed for themselves, right? I mean, the idea of, you know, to be woke was an exhortation that was used unironically in a positive way by people who thought of themselves as woke. Uh, but then because it sort of became appropriated by a lot of the critics of the movement, including some less subtle critics of the movement. Now, when you talk about overwoke or wokeness, you sort of sound like an old man, you know, yelling at the clouds. And so this is this is odd thing where you just like, do not have a term that you can use to describe that political space that is neutral and generally recognized as applying to very clear ideological movement. Now, I think successor ideology has real merits because it sort of feels neutral in a kind of way, right? It doesn't feel like like the woke, you know, it's like, oh, success ideology, it sort of feels like a way of referring to it as a starter to a conversation. The thing I don't like about it is that it sort of assumes that this ideology will win, right? To be the successor is to have succeeded in becoming the successor. And that sort of prejudges the outcome of what I think is going to be one of the big intellectual debates of the next 20, 25 years. And as you're indicating, it's not quite clear to me where it falls. And part of the question about that is, when I go back and forth in thinking about how profoundly divorced from liberal values the American left has become, you know, it's a little bit in a different vein with sort of Bernie Sanders' problem, right? Where some people call themselves socialists, and what they mean is that they want a sort of Scandinavian welfare state, which is perfectly compatible with liberalism and democracy and so on, right? I mean, some people call themselves a socialist, and when you dig down a little bit, they're sort of fans of Venezuela, which is, you know, rather more concerning to me, right? And in a similar way, you know, some of the ideas that advocates of a, or adherents of a successor ideology, or if you like, the woke endorse, I think are quite profoundly liberal. But I never know whether, you know, when push comes to shove and institutions start to be ruled by those norms, would a lot of pe- these people celebrate it? Or would they say, hang on a second, that actually does go against pretty deeply held values I have about how to treat people fairly and so on. So I guess my question is, you know, the people on the left who say that they're not liberal and who say that liberalism is a lot of a problem, do you think they really are profoundly anti-liberal or do you think that they're sort of cosplaying or that they're wrong about their own preferences and when push comes to shove, they actually hold these liberal assumptions and beliefs more clearly than they realize? I'm generally unsure about that, I think. I could be wrong, but I do believe that liberalism is actually so deeply embedded in American culture and attitudes that people, when they say that someone says I'm communist or something like that, I don't think they actually believe it most of the time. I think there's some fringe of people who actually are very serious and thought through, thought through. But I think in America, branding and advertising and marketing is so deeply embedded in the culture. You have to brand your political opinions in the most attention-getting way as well, too. Maybe it means something totally different in the end. Like, first, you mentioned Scandinavian welfare state. People who say they're against capitalism and that's what they want. It's very compatible capitalism and no, no disjuncture at all, in fact. And I think we'd be successful with that, in fact. Sweden, I believe, has a higher number of billionaires per capita than the United States does. Uh, I did not know that, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, so I think that in reality, I could be wrong. Maybe, you know, the in the camp and being like the subject of the indoctrination 10 years from now. But I think that the majority of people actually, they are deeply committed to liberalism, but I do think there's people who are not. And I also think that often ideological movements, they're not really driven by the majority of people's opinion or their followers. They're driven by like a vanguard of people who kind of set the tone 
And they can kind of jujitsu people into a certain position later on, which they may not have expected. Happens very often in revolutions and so forth. So I'm not really sure. But also, I would say, too, that whatever this new trend in progressivism, I would just call it radical liberalism, perhaps I would call it radicalized liberalism. It's very unstructured because of its nature. And it drifts in these brand directions, these purity spirals. It's like, you know, no set agreed tenets, even though there's some broad principles. So I don't know how durable it is for that reason. Like, I think it could, you know, flame out. It could transform something totally different. Communism, it really required a structure for ideological coherence in the long term to keep it going, to build something. This seems very disappearing. seems like kind of, it's very diffuse and it doesn't really have a structure. Maybe that's why it's kind of hard to define as well, too. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a million dollar question where this is going. And I feel like when you look at the influence that these ideas have on American institutions, there are some ideas that have already retracted, but were just so untenable that they're effectively dead. I mean, you know, for a few months, this idea of defending the police was very, very powerful. And now I think it just has no political support because across most of the ideological spectrum and certainly across demographic groups, it's deeply unpopular. But I think there's areas where we really have a fight for dominance, areas where we're really clashing about, well, what are the acceptable boundaries of cultural appropriation or what are the, you know, acceptable boundaries of the kinds of opinions you can express in public without very adverse consequences? What are the boundaries of the extent to which the state should be involved in, you know, classifying and pushing back against something like misinformation versus having a very lively fights? And then I think there's an area where we just sort of started to accept that you don't do certain things, you can't do certain things. And some of that is positive and some of it is negative. You know, there's like this fight over rewriting Roald Dahl, but it sort of feels like there's some pushback about that because all kinds of things like that where, you know, in journalism and publishing and in other areas, but there's stuff people don't try to do because they realize it's not going to get passed. And I think there's sort of a lot that's already baked in. So I think there's sort of these like different categories of how it's changing our culture. And it's very hard to go from aggregating those categories to an overall picture of what the present state of the matter is, let alone a confident prediction of what it's going to look like in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Part of the reason I differ from some of the critics of this too, in some cases, is because they're very reactive reflexive. Sometimes they reject all of it. But I think that like some of these changes, like whatever we call them, they're just the inculcating norms of how to be polite in a more diverse, complicated society. Like some of it, like HR trainings, some of it is really bad. Some of it is like, I think just that. So, I think like the idea behind some of the stuff is not necessarily negative. Just the practices are disturbing in some cases. Like the rolled off thing, like the content of it, I really did not like the content of the changes. But if I were telling them you can't change books up there in your canon because you know they don't like them anymore, you should grapple with complexity instead. I think that if I told people that the people who are driving the changes, they just stop teaching the books in general, which could be worse. Like I'm not, I'm not really sure about the, the question. But you know, it's like yeah, there's like a happy medium. I think also, if I were to say one thing, like coming from watching other societies and reporting on them and living them and so forth, is that whatever you do, like I think this makes people uncomfortable on all sides, is that you don't want to have an ideology or teaching kids things which increases racial polarization or increases polarization in general. You don't want to teach people that you're on a hierarchy, it's a moral hierarchy, you fit here and you fit there. Because it's not good for people at the top of the hierarchy, it's not good for people at the bottom of the hierarchy. It teaches them very, very bad things. And Americans, there's a very charming thing about them is that uh, they always view developments in their country as completely unique in a way. And they're like 
cultural entrepreneurs and the avant-garde. I think it's not really the case. I think that you can replicate things happening in far less developed societies in a very developed society of the United States if you inculcate attitudes which are polarizing, for instance, or you just you're doing that. So that's the thing I really don't like about some of the stuff. I think that you know we should have a harmonious sort of attitude towards what we teach kids and so forth. If you want to change the books, if you want to teach people in HR, you know, X, Y, and Z thing, how to deal with the coworkers, I think it's okay. But let's not set people against each other, regardless who they are. I strongly agree with that. And there's this very strong social science of how deeply corrosive that is. And I agree with you, but sort of strange sort of provincialism in American society, a little bit across the board, but sometimes most striking in these milieus who think of themselves as being very global and very enlightened and very knowledgeable about different parts of the world, but who really don't think of America in the context of these other societies. Let me put something else to you that's been just floating around in my mind. You know, I went to see the Book of Mormon a while ago, and that came out, I think, a few years before Obama was elected president. And when I rewatched some episodes from 30 Rock, and I watched some South Park and Family Guy, all of the shows that were really big in the mid-2000s. And what struck me about them is that they were very irreverent. Today, a lot of people would say offensive, you know, form of entertainment. That also was actually very liberal and progressive in its way, right? I mean, the values of the creators of all of these different cultural products was overwhelmingly to the left. They, within those contexts, were quite critical of and hostile towards more conservative institutions, whether it is Republicans in 30 Rock or the Mormon Church and the Book of Mormon and so on. And yet they were so sort of irreverent and self-lampooning that they didn't come across in a sort of very haughty way. And I just wonder whether that is the cultural background music, along with the failures of the Bush administration and the sort of, you know, longing for change that the country generally felt at the time, but allowed someone like Barack Obama to win a big victory. And I wonder whether those sort of cultural preconditions have ceased to be the case, right? That sort of as the reigning culture of the American lead has become so much more serious and earnest and so on. It just is off-putting to people in an ironic way. Something like Obama wouldn't be possible. Liberals have become very pious. They've become very, the most pious Christians in the world. They don't actually identify Jesus per se, but, you know, they've become so pious that that's why, going back to what I said earlier about, like, you criticizing beliefs, people getting upset. It's because the piety of the beliefs are so deeply embedded that it's become... Once it's become a religion, but it's become something bearing on that. The same metaphysical and seriousness and energy has been devoted to that. Can I name a single left-wing person who I think is funny today? Like, I struggle to do that. And I used to, they always be funny. They used to be the funniest ones. And Trump, you know, what he did was he was like a blasphemer. He was like if the Vatican elected a blasphemous pope. That was basically the how people interpret Trump being in the White House. Like he was blaspheming the tenets of you know, liberal pieties every single day. Does that make someone a good president if they do that? But just by nature, I would say no. But I see what people like it. I see what they like it because they're feel suffocated by these, you know, pious attitudes and so forth. And, you know, the great stress of liberalism and liberals in the United States, they were very funny for a very long time. They're very reverent, as he said. They were chiding others' pieties very effectively. And now their own pieties are being chided and they kind of look a little stiff and rigid. And I think the Trump's election, it, it, it intensified the piety, in fact. We need to be even more pious as well, in response to him. And I think that's kind of sad because like they've kind of lost uh, something that made them very powerful. And 
you know, if you're going to criticize yourself, you're going to have to also be irreverent to your own beliefs as well, too. And you have to set a distance from them in that sense. So it's really unfortunate. I think that that's kind of, you've hit a really core thing. There's been a cultural shift where to some greater degree than ever was before. I, like, it used to be a punchline. There was no funny in your right-wingers conservative. It's not possible. Now it's a bit reversed a little bit. Like, I can't think of a funny leftist at the moment. If someone can disprove me, I would love to see it. But the ones who are funny are the ones who actually, they're so quote-unquote problematic, you can't actually like, keep it acknowledge them because they actually, they're doing saying things which would be seen as, you know, very uh, impious over the line and so forth. But those people are welcome to broader liberal culture. Murtaza Hussein, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.